Put up End Times, Revelation 2017. I have a bunch of um, PowerPoints we may go to. So I made a list, and I just copied it and gave it to Dustin. I said, Dustin, we'll figure this out together tonight as we do this. So I'm just going to yell them out, and Dustin's going to find them and put them up there. I have noticed when I start teaching on end times that I don't know where it's going to go because of the questions that pop up. So if you notice, and I'm not exaggerating, I have probably about 20 sheets printed off here. So wherever you want to go, let's see what the Bible has to say and to go from there. And this will be a lot of fun here tonight. So Mark chapter 13, we did the first half last week. And we're going to be starting with the second half here this week. Let's pray. Lord, as we get ready to learn more about the end, help us to remember you are God from the beginning. So we do not have to worry about the end, that we will not be afraid of any of this. We walk in faith and trust in you. Help us just to have a biblical understanding of this, to truly know what you're trying to tell us, and to not only learn it, to know it, but to go out and live it. Live it in all we say and all we do. We thank you and praise you in your name. Amen. Alrighty, not going to review everything we went through last week, but if you would jump to the beginning of Mark chapter 13, because we are going to be starting actually in verse 14. Quick reminder of how we got to this point. We got to this point because as the disciples and Jesus were walking by in verse 1 of the chapter, the disciples say, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. The temple was amazing. Two weeks ago, we spent a whole service talking about the temple mount looked like and the beauty of it, the majesty of it. It was just absolutely amazing. But Jesus said in verse 2, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another, and that shall not be thrown down. And that was true. That happened in 70 AD. The Roman general Titus came. They besieged Jerusalem for a few years and completely destroyed the temple, tore it apart, burned it on fire, brick by brick, got the gold out of there, and completely, utterly demolished it. At the moment, at the time for Jesus to say this, that would have been unbelievable that this temple mouth, this 33-acre complex, would have been destroyed like that. But yet it was. So now this leads the disciples to ask a couple more questions. Verse 3, they ask him privately, tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things will be fulfilled? So now they're coming up to Jesus and saying, okay, we heard what you said, but what does this really look like? And so last week we got into verses 3 through 13. We talked about how prophetically and practically we're supposed to look at this. That there's a prophetic element to this. God said himself in Isaiah 41, he says, you want to know that I'm God, I'm the God, because I can tell you the past from the future and the beginning from the end. And that's what separates the Bible from any other quote-unquote holy religious book as prophecy, and not just prophecy, because anybody can throw prophecy out there, folks. It's fulfilled prophecy. Fulfilled prophecy sometimes to the day. That's what makes it absolutely so amazing. But we're supposed to take this prophetic knowledge and use it practically. Here's the problem with end times. As we mentioned last week, there's two sides of the pendulum. One side of the pendulum is that's all we focus on. And we're looking at end times all the time. Where is the Antichrist? Who's the Antichrist? We're watching Jerusalem. We're watching Iran. We're watching Russia. And every single thing we see, we're looking at from the prophetic lens. And we got our focus on prophecy, which is good. But yet our neighbor who's going to hell, we've never shared Jesus Christ with. That's the problem. The other side of the pendulum is this. I'm not going to be here for it, so I don't need to worry about it. Well, Jesus thought it was important for us to know. Hence, in Luke and in Matthew and in Mark, he talks about it. In Ezekiel, they talk about it. Revelation, 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy. There's book after book and chapter after chapter where God wants us to not be ignorant 
of what the end times look like. So therefore, with that being said, let's just go scripturally through this. So last week we got into these signs, these warning signs of what it looks like. And you see them that are coming. And the first one that you saw was false prophets and false antichrists, false teachings. We talked about that. A big one that popped up is verse 7, wars and rumors of wars. And verse 8, nation rising against nation. But look at verse 7. This is so important to remember. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled. For such things must happen, but the end is not yet. You can't walk in fear of this stuff. I know people that get worked up. They start talking about rapture, end times, second coming, antichrist. And instead of creating an excitement of, of, of Maranatha, come Lord, it becomes, oh no. No, we're not supposed to be fearful of these things. We also then talk about how persecution will arise. Verse 11, they will arrest you. Verse 12, they will betray you. Verse 13, you will be hated. But yet the gospel will be preached. And that's happening in all places all over the world. We may not be affected by that right here in the United States as much as we're meeting here freely and openly. And thank the Lord for the blessing of that. But in many places of the world, that is happening. So that is our quick review from last week that now we get into this week. And to keep the context I'm actually going to read a lot of it. Most of the time we read it, break it down, which we will. But I think it's important to get the full context of this. So start with me in verse 14, please. So, now that he's laid the groundwork of false prophets, false teaching, persecutions, wars and rumors of wars, famines, pestilence, earthquakes. So, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who's on the housetop not go down into the house nor enter to take anything out of his house. Let him who's in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days and pray that your flight may not be in winter. For in those days there will be tribulation such as not been seen since the beginning of the creation which God created until this time nor shall ever be. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake whom he chose, he shortened the days. Then if anyone says to you, look here is the Christ or look here he is there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if even possible, the elect. But take heed, see, I have told you all things before him. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest parts of earth to the farthest part of heaven. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branches has already become tender and put forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near at the doors. As surely I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch, and pray, for you do not know what the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, or at the crowning of the rooster, or in the morning. Lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping, and what I say to you, I say to all, watch." If you remember correctly, last week we emphasized verse 33. Take heed, watch, and pray. Take heed, watch. That phrase, take heed and watch, is repeated a total of eight times here. The phrase is take heed and watch in this chapter. Because God is saying to take this information and let this affect you. Now, 
And we hit this last week, so I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but I've got to repeat it again. The, the emphasis of this is for us to stop and say, if I really do believe that all these events are true, that Jesus Christ is really going to return at any moment, and there is going to be this tribulation and persecution, I believe all this, should this not drive me to be a light and a witness in all I say I do right now? This information is given to me to say, I'm going to go use this information to change the hearts of people for Christ. This information is not given to me just to underline the verses and say, oh, neat, Jesus is returning. I know what the rapture is. It's supposed to drive me on to be different in how I live and how I act. So therefore, verse 33, take heed, watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. And look at the end in 37. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. We read some verses out of Romans last week where Jesus is saying there's supposed to be an urgency to this. We know it's coming. Get prepared. So what's coming? Jump back to verse 14. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of Daniel by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let the reader understand. We're supposed to have an understanding of this. So let's start right there. You got your sheets. You should have them right here. And they should look very similar to what's up there. That idea of the abomination of desolation, you can see it smack dab in the middle of the sheet there. This abomination of desolation is quite an event. This is one of those events that's going to change everything here as it happens and what's going to go on with it. So with the abomination of desolation, what are we talking about? We've got to back up a little bit. What's going to happen is this. Right now there's no temple over in Israel. The temple needs to be rebuilt. Because what happens in the abomination of desolation is the Antichrist comes on the scene and he goes into the temple and he sets up worship for himself. We know this from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, this idea that the Antichrist goes in and sets up worship in the temple. Looks like he either sets up himself or sets up some type of idol there. You know, it says in Matthew 24, standing in the holy temple. At this point, the Jews are shown that they were wrong. See, they believe that the Antichrist is actually a great guy. Because according to Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, the Antichrist comes and he brings peace. He brings peace to the Middle East. This is something people have been trying to do since 1948. I think every president that we've ever elected has always said they're going to do something to bring peace to the Middle East. And I always sit there and I think, if you knew your Bible, you would know that's not possible. And the guy that does bring supposed peace to the Middle East is not the guy you want to vote for. So I want peace in the Middle East too. That's why it says in Psalms, and I pray two Psalms every Sunday morning, Psalm 100 and Psalm 122, and one of them says to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, and I do pray for the peace of Jerusalem, and the way Jerusalem will have peace is when Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning. So that's when Jerusalem will have peace, is when Jesus is ruling and reigning. Until then, it's a false, false, see I just created a word there, false and fake, quote me on that, it's a false peace, false and fake peace. So what happens is this. There has to be a temple rebuilt, and there has to be the rise of the Antichrist. The Antichrist comes into power, and as Antichrist comes into power, this temple is rebuilt, and for the first few years of the Antichrist reign, the world looks pretty good. Now, why does the world do this? Well, because if you can look at your sheets, and look here, there's this event called the rapture that happens first. And what we believe the Bible teaches is something called a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. That means the rapture happens before all these events happen. If you flip your sheet over, you should see on the back, rapture versus second coming. Because there are two different events. They sound very similar, but they're actually very quite different. The rapture is Christ meets us in the air. And who do I mean by us? I mean us, the body of Christ, born-again believers. 
The Bible says it happens in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. It could happen at any moment right now. What we believe and teach is that there's no more fulfilled prophecies waiting to happen. Everything has been taken care of, so therefore at any moment this rapture could happen. It could happen now. It could happen before we're done teaching. It could happen in a year. It could happen in 10 years. It could happen in 100 years. We do not know. I do believe this, and I think it was Chuck Smith was the first one I've ever heard teach on this, that said that he believes that it's on every generation that they could be the last generation. Because therefore, if you don't think you're the last generation, you'll start to become a little complacent in your faith and walk with Christ. If you believe that Jesus could return at any moment, it's a little bit of a fire that keeps you going. I've joked with you guys before that if somebody's coming over to my house, I like to know when they're coming. Because if you're coming at 4 o'clock at 3.59, my house will be clean. It will not be clean any moment before that. If you just say, hi, I'm going to pop over sometime in the afternoon, you're going to drive me crazy. Because I can get the house picked up, but I can't keep it picked up with 10 people living in my house. See, if Jesus said, hey, guess what? I'm coming in 2092. I'd stop and say, okay, 2092, 73 years. I probably won't be alive at that moment. So I don't have to worry about the rapture. So as long as I don't die some tragic unknown death accidentally, I should be fine. But yet, in the back of my mind, if I know that Christ could return at any moment, according to the book of 1 John, this is something that actually keeps me on my toes in a good way. And it makes me stay pure. Because I could meet my maker, meet my boss, meet my God, my Savior, everything, at any moment, at any time. And so, therefore, I want to be ready for this. And it's, once again, it's a fire that lights under us to keep us moving. So we meet Christ in the air instantaneously. Corinthians, in the moment in the twinkling of an eye. And it will be just like that, and part of the world will just disappear. This leads to lots of questions, and there's been lots of movies made about it. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if piles of clothes will be left. I don't know if false teeth and earrings will be left. I don't know any of that. I've seen movies where it was, and that's just creepy and gross to me. I don't know. I just know that in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, I'm gone, I'm in heaven, and I'm transformed. I don't know any other details by that. Now, I do believe this because questions pop up about it. What about children? I believe children will go in the rapture. I believe in, that the Bible teaches that there's this idea of the age of accountability. That term is not in the Bible. You'll not be able to find it. But you can find references to where God has a special place in his heart, especially for kids. A great example of that is when David's one-year-old son died. And, and David, they came and told David, your son has died. And David said, I can't have him come back to me, but I can go to him. And David knew where his son was at, so I believe children will be taken in the rapture as well. So we are met Christ in the air. Christ returns to take us home. We go home with Christ just like that. It's over and done instantaneously. Now, one of three things happen when you hear this. One that excites you. And I tell you, there's the little phrase we use at the Irvin House where we say, you know what, the rapture could happen. And we say that in a loving way. Something's coming up we don't want to deal with. There's a deep sigh. We say, you know what, the rapture could happen before then. We don't have to deal with it. Two, it can make you scared. The rapture could happen at any moment, and you don't know if you get to go or not. Three, probably the most dangerous one is apathy. Oh, the rapture could happen at any moment, but you know what? I got to go home and watch TV right now. Careful the apathy one. The fear one can drive you deeper into Jesus Christ. The apathy one will make you complacent. And it goes back to those verses we read last week in Romans where it says, Wake up. This is why Christ is saying, Take heed, watch. 
Now, I'm going to go a little bit out of timeline order here because since we just talked about the rapture, let's jump ahead now to the end, the second coming. What's the difference between the rapture and the second coming? The second coming is now after seven years of tribulation on the earth, after seven years of Christ cleaning house and judging the earth, Jesus Christ returns. And he returns and he literally steps foot on the earth. He steps foot on the earth. And if you've ever read it, and I believe it's in the book of Zechariah, when he steps foot on the earth, he splits the earth. He creates new topography over there in Israel. It's absolutely amazing. He returns to reign. And it's called the millennial reign because the Bible teaches us in Revelation that Jesus rules and reigns for 1,000 years. Think about that for a second. For 1,000 years, Jesus Christ will rule and reign. It's absolutely amazing. And we get to return with Christ, and we get to rule and reign with him. What's the millennial like? A couple quick notes here on what the millennial is like. Jesus literally ruling and reigning on earth in the flesh right there. Amazing. It says in the book of Isaiah that he's going to be leading Bible studies. That's going to be pretty neat. Number two, we rule and reign with him like we said. When you study out in the book of Isaiah, the curse is reversed. The curse is not lifted. It's reversed. This is where you get these ideas in the book of Isaiah that if somebody dies at the age of 100, they're considered like a child. This is where you get the idea... That the wolf lays down with the lamb. It is not the lion and the lamb. Just want to throw that out there. It's the wolf and the lamb lay down together. The curse is reversed. Temptation is limited. Why is temptation limited? Because number one, you have Jesus ruling and reigning. And the Bible says he rules with a rod of iron. Number two, Satan is going to be bound. Satan is going to be cast away for a thousand years. When you stop and you think about that, that is absolutely amazing to think about that. Because at the end of the tribulation, Satan is cast away for a thousand years. Sin is dealt with quickly. Sin is dealt with quickly. You're not going to be able to get away with stuff. Because Jesus is ruling and reigning. Expanded lifespan, it sounds like we kind of go back to the beginning of the book of Genesis, living for centuries. Work is a blessing. We don't realize what that's like. Think back to the beginning in Genesis, where it says that God had the garden, he gave Adam to tend and keep it. Adam had a job, but this job was a blessing. It wasn't a curse to him. Work will be a blessing. There will be peace in creation. There will be peace in the world. And we will live with Jesus for a thousand years. It's absolutely amazing. The millennial reign of Christ, which happens after the second coming. So what we're really dealing with now is the seven years between the rapture and the second coming, which is known as the tribulation. And that's the main emphasis that we're talking about here, right here, right now. So we're going to stop for a quick second, catch your breath, make sure we understand the bookends. Rapture, second coming, and we'll get the details now in the middle. Any quick questions about anything here before we move on? I, the one wearing black, please. Sorry, the one wearing black with a mustache. The one wearing black with a mustache and glasses. That's over 60. The one wearing black with a mustache glasses worked at GM. Are you guys twins? Go ahead, Marv. Yes, you. Right. Some people do believe that. 
the only, the only reason I would go against a little bit about the body being left, and some people say, it says the Bible says that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, and I do not disagree with that. But the wording is that we will be transformed. So therefore, it's not that we will be left. It would have been different if the Bible says the moment of twinkling of eye, you will be left. No, but my body is going to be transformed. So therefore, to me, that carries something's going to happen from my physical fleshly existence is going to be transformed to a glorious body. So I don't see the bodies being left. I see it more of a transformation happening. Or would be born again believers. I mean, people that No, people would die that don't happen. Their tent is left here. Well, they're going to get their glorified body. That talks about in Corinthians that there's terrestrial bodies and there's celestial bodies. And so therefore, when we die, we get a brand new glorified body. But the word for the rapture is transformed. And that's why it makes me think that there's not bodies left. That's my opinion. You know, and I don't mean this to be creepy, so don't take it that way. Can you imagine that there's a billion people at rapture and there's a billion bodies just left? I'm saying that would be kind of interesting there. But it says transform, so that's why he thinks that something's going to happen differently. John? Um, I'm curious about, I understand the rapture and I agree with that, uh, but well, the Holy Spirit, I know the Holy Spirit is keeping Satan from setting himself up in the temple of God mm-hmm. in the midst of uh, three and a half years in. Is the Holy Spirit going to still be here between the rapture and that? The extreme views on that are two extreme views, and I go probably right in the middle of it. Extreme view one is that when the rapture happens, the Holy Spirit goes. Now, the problem with that view is then all of a sudden you're going to have to say, well, then God's not uh, omnipresent. Because if the Holy Spirit's gone, that doesn't make any sense. Um, So number two, it does look like it changes a little bit in the book of Revelation. The best description I've ever heard about this is the Holy Spirit has more of a role that like the Old Testament than what you see in the New Testament. You have to remember that in the New Testament, there's, there's certain benefits and blessings we have. We are called the church, the body of Christ. The people that get saved after the rapture, because the only people left on earth after the rapture are non-believers. There are going to be a lot of people that get saved in the tribulation. The Bible makes that clear. But they're referred to as tribulation saints. They get a little bit of different role. They get a little bit of different blessing than what we get. So I believe the Holy Spirit will be around during the book of Revelation. I believe the Holy Spirit will be around in the tribulation. But it looks like his role in ministry will be a little bit different than what we have right now. So, but I would not go to the extreme that the Holy Spirit would not be around like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was hoping no one would bring that up. <laughs> because that's a tricky passage. So let's just let's just do it. Um, let's go there. First Thessalonians. Um, chapter four, please. This is a tough one. This is a tough one. I've had people come up and ask me over the years, is there any parts of the Bible that, that you struggle with? And First Thessalonians chapter 4, I probably spent more time chewing on these passages, asking godly people how you take this, and I'm gonna, just going to go with what I have learned, read, and studied, and how I take this. Okay, First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, which is just a nice way to say they've died, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Christ. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. 
For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Bethany, right? That's what you're referencing there, correct? Okay, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, there's a couple different ways you can take this. I'm just going to throw out a couple different ways, and then I'm going to eventually take you to what I believe how it applies, and this is the way I see it. And let me stress to you, this is my opinion, and I always try to say it three times, my opinion, my opinion. What matters most at this passage is that if you are born again and saved in Christ... Whether you get to go to heaven via the rapture or you get to go to heaven via natural death, you get to heaven. That's, that's what matters the most. So the details of how you get there do not matter as much because you're born again and saved through Jesus Christ. And this is where people get caught up in the wording. Okay. What some people believe and take this to mean, and I consider this, I call this the Looney Tunes idea. Now that's not being insulting, so please don't take it that way. The reason I call it the Looney Tunes idea is this. You remember watching cartoons as a kid. And if you remember while you're watching your cartoons as a kid, any time one of the cartoon characters died, what always happened? That little thing floated up, right? The little spirit of who they were floated up to heaven. And so I think what happens is this, is we've been ingrained into our mind and also through Christian movies and other things like that where it says that the dead in Christ will rise first, that we have in this mindset that all of a sudden that if I'm at a graveside during the rapture, I'm going to watch these things like float up out of the grave and go up because it says the dead in Christ will rise first. And so therefore that their, their physical remains of their bodies are going to go up and what's going to happen is they're going to be transformed. They're going to be go, and they get to go first. And so it's therefore, since they get to go first, it says in verse 17, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them. So they get to go first, and then we get to go second. Now, if that's true, according to Corinthians, this all has to happen in the twinkling of an eye. Which, if God wants to do that, he can do that. But it's going to happen so utterly fast that no one's going to even be tell it's happening. Because if I'm being transformed to the moment in the twinkling of an eye, but yet the dead in Christ get to go first in the, faster than the moment of the twinkling of an eye, that means I'm never going to see it happen. And they're never going to see it happen. And the people standing around are never going to see it happen. It's going to happen really quick. And if that's the way God wants to do it, that's the way God wants to do it. Right? Okay. What I've done, and this is how I've studied out, and this is how I see it, and if you've got a different biblically-backed, prayed-over opinion, you want to come share with me, I'm, I'm willing to talk to you about it. I think the key to me is if you read, in the dead in Christ will rise first, you have to go back up to verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. God brings them with him. See, that's key. So if he's bringing them with him, I don't see them out of the grave up to heaven coming back down. I don't see that happening. They're bringing him with him. So the way I take this, that the dead in Christ will rise first, this is the way I take it. Let's say I use Dawn and me as an example. Let's say that I pass before Dawn. So I have died absent from the body, present with the Lord. I am home in heaven with Jesus Christ. When the rapture happens, the dead in Christ will rise first. I've already risen. I'm already up there first. So I get to come down. I don't think it's like this, oh, quick first, second place. The dead in Christ rise first. There's no soul sleep. They're not hanging out in the grave, just twiddling their dead thumbs, waiting to be resurrected. 
They're already up there because verse 14, they come with him. And so therefore, that's why it's saying in verse 13, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others that have no hope. They're dead in Christ rose first. They got there first. They come back down with Jesus. And what happens? 17, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them. I get to be caught up together. I get to meet him in the air. That's the way I take it. So I don't know if that, does that help answer, Bethany? Okay. So that's the way I take it. Other people you will run into will say, no, there's this idea of the, the graves and the bodies, and that's, that's fine. I just, the more I study it out, the more I see the only way for me logically to work is the way I explained it there in the second time. So I don't know if that helps or creates more confusion. Any other questions here between rapture, second coming, making sure we got those two bookends done, and we're going to start talking about the middle then to make sure we got that. Mark. Yeah, that is a fascinating one as well. That is in, uh, let's go to that. Let's go to Matthew 27. This is one of those strange little ones you don't hear a lot about on Resurrection Sunday, but man, what a great one this one is too. See, folks, this is why I bought, brought 20 sheets tonight. Because <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know we were going to go. Let's start, Matthew 27. Let's start in verse 50. It says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. This is where Christ is on the cross. And yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was, was torn in two. Wow, torn in two. 60 foot high, 30 foot wide. Torn in two. Multiple inches thick. They don't know exactly how thick it was, but I've heard anywhere from just a couple inches, but now that doesn't seem right, to maybe up to a foot, foot and a half, which would be huge. Probably somewhere in between that, this is huge, this veil. So the veil of temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That's important. And the earthquake and the rocks were split. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now, the key phrase there is found in 53, coming out of the graves after his resurrection. After. What we can piece together with this is this is what happened. Jesus dies. Okay? Darkness, noon to three. Jesus dies. Earthquake happens. Stones break open. And all of a sudden, there's these graves, and you can see in the graves. Now, being good Jews, with the Sabbath approaching and with Passover approaching, they're not going to touch anything. So therefore, they don't touch those graves. And the graves are now open for a few days. So everybody can see, you're going to see the dead bodies in there. The graves are open. Jesus Christ rises first. We know he rises first. Corinthians calls him the first fruits, the first to rise from the dead. And then after him, it says that they rose if you study out the Old Testament, Jesus is the first fruit. And so what happens is there's this thing in the Bible called a wave offering, where you then offer up more after the first fruits. And so Jesus was the first fruits of the offering, and then all these other people showed that they had life as well, too. It's a real neat symbolism that Christ is the first to rise from the dead, and that therefore then these guys then come after. But the key point there is the graves are open, and they came out of the graves after his resurrection. Since Christ is the first fruit, it shows that trickle-down effect. And I don't like that term, but it shows that effect there, how Christ was the first to rise from the dead, and how his resurrection 
resurrection affects other things as well too. But it's a real neat, just real neat study there in Matthew 27. All right, so we got the bookends, rapture to second coming. How are we doing? Any other questions? Okay, now, jump back now. Mark 13. So technically, I don't even know if we've done one verse. But, okay, so we're at the abomination of desolation now. Rapture happens, all the believers are gone. So the only people left on the earth are non-believers. Only people left, non-believers. It says in Thessalonians that there are restraining forces being taken away. Most people believe that's a reference to the Holy Spirit in the church being taken out. And so therefore, now that the Antichrist can come into the power there. So the Antichrist now comes and he rises in power. Now who is the Antichrist? We have no idea. Don't waste your time trying to figure out who he is. So many Christians have been spent so much time figuring out who he is. I've been walking with the Lord since 93. So over 26 years, people have thrown out so many ideas for the Antichrist. It seems like whoever is a political leader over in the Middle East, they say he's got the Antichrist. Best one I ever heard back in the mid-90s, and I'm not making this up, was that JFK was still on life support and that he was going to come off life support. That's what they really believed, folks. What do we know about the Antichrist? Was just keep this absolutely biblical. I got all the references here for time's sake. I'm not going to share the verses. If you want to know afterwards, I can tell you it. We know that he's empowered by Satan. Empowered by Satan personally. Who is the other guy empowered by Satan personally? Judas. Seems like the enemy likes to use demons to do a lot of work, but if he's got a big job he needs to do, he does it himself. Antichrist is a human being empowered by Satan personally. He persecutes the saints. He blasphemes God. He will be a political power. He will rule the world politically, religiously, economically, militarily. He'll align himself with religious Babylon. What's religious Babylon? Babylon in the Bible is bad. Just remember that. Babylon is bad. Religious Babylon is the religious institutions left on this earth after the rapture happens. See, we have this tendency to think that once the rapture happens that the world's going to fall apart. I hope it does. But sadly, think, just think this through, folks. There's going to be a lot of countries not affected by the rapture at all. You get to some of these countries that are predominantly Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, the rapture is going to make a tiny little dent in their country. Their political leadership will still be there. Their military will still be there. Their economy will still be there. We have this understanding that even here in America that the rapture happens and the nation will completely, utterly fall apart. I hope there's that many born-again believers in the United States. The reality is, when you look around, folks, I really honestly don't know how many people are going to go in the rapture. People may show up for work the next day and say, hey, have you seen Bill? Oh, I haven't seen Bill for a few days. I don't know. It'd be great if everything would fall apart because there's so many believers. But I'm telling you right now in certain parts of the world, I don't think the world is going to fall apart as much as we think it's going to fall apart. So he's going to align himself with what the religions that are left over. What's going to be left over? Well, let's just be honest. The Muslims aren't being raptured. The Hindus aren't being raptured. The Buddhists aren't being raptured. That doesn't sound like a lot to us. But guys, if you just get on the other side of the world, there's a lot of Muslims. There's a lot of Hindus. There's a lot of Buddhists. There's a lot of agnostics in Europe. There's a lot of atheists in Europe. There's going to be a lot of countries not affected. So the leftover stream of this religion, and let's just be quite honest, some of the religions that like to call themselves Christian are not going to be affected by the rapture. Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, etc. And some of even the mainline churches, let's just be really honest, 
Are a lot of them going to be taken? I don't know, and I'm not saying that to be judgmental or rude. I don't know. There's going to be a lot of religious entity left. So the Antichrist aligns himself with that religious entity. He has some type of fake resurrection in Revelation 13. The details are a little sketchy on it. But you know what? He kind of likes to do everything that Jesus did. That's why he's called the Antichrist. He is in place of Christ, and he goes the opposite of Christ. Jesus had a resurrection. He's going to have a resurrection. It's a fake resurrection. He'll be in power for three and a half years. If you can look at your sheets, you see that little arrow going up, the rise of the Antichrist. The first three and a half years, he's in power, building up his kingdom. This, now we finally get to it. So he builds his power to the point of peace in the Middle East. He builds his power to being a military leader, to being an economic leader, to being a religious leader. And what happens is this. There's this battle that happens in Ezekiel 38 and 39. We just kind of call it the Battle of Gog, Magog, where Russia invades Israel from the north and this group of Muslim nations invade Israel from the south. So this is where we get a lot of these end times. That's why you watch Russia. That's why you watch Jerusalem. That's why you watch Iran, etc. So Muslims are coming from the south. Russia's coming from the north. God brings fire down from heaven, takes out one of them. And it looks like the Antichrist helps take care of the other one. The Jews love this man so much that he rides this wave to the abomination of desolation where he goes into the temple that has been rebuilt and proclaims himself to be God. That's how we get to this point. That's why now in Mark 13, Jesus says, when you see this, run. Please remember what we said last week. This chapter are Jewish men asking a Jewish teacher about a Jewish temple. We can take elements from this as Christians, but this is carrying a very Jewish feel. So when you see this abomination of desolation, run. Because what happens is the second half of the tribulation, the second three and a half years, if you can see on your sheets there, we have the trumpet and we have the bowl judgments. The trumpet and bowl judgments are absolutely awful. The seal judgments seem to happen more in the first three and a half years, and they're bad. But the trumpet and bowl judgments, this is where you're talking about millions, if not billions of people dying. And so what happens here is Jesus is saying, run. There's an urgency. Verses 15, 16, 17, go, run, flee into the mountains. What it looks like we're talking about here, and you guys got to remember, we're, we're covering books of the Bible in major chapters in a half hour. We're kind of speeding up the process here a little bit is you have to remember what happens is when the Antichrist is revealed according to the book of Revelation, Israel flees into the wilderness. You can see in your sheets there, Israel's divinely protected for the last three and a half years. The Antichrist comes to try to destroy them. He can't destroy them. They are divinely protected by God. So the Antichrist turns everything now onto the rest of the world. And the world just literally, and I, and I don't say this lightly, it becomes hell on earth. And it's awful for the last three and a half years. Now, I do have to throw this out here in verses 14 through 23, that when Jesus taught on this, we can tell from other history, it's not mentioned in the Bible, but right around 67 AD, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. The believers, the believers at that time took this literally. And so when they saw this starting to happen, the Romans coming in this battle beginning, that the Christians fled Jerusalem into the mountains. Because they said they saw this coming, this abomination of desolation. From that perspective, the temple being destroyed in 7 AD. But we also know that there's a deeper meaning to this that's happening now in the future. 
So now once this abomination of desolation happens, now we get into 24 through 27. And this is where you get into what you think of when you think of Revelation. You think of tribulation, sun darkened, moon not give its light, stars from heaven falling. And then you think of all this. And that's what trumpet judgments are and bold judgments are. And then you get the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great glory. And that's the second coming And he gathers those that are left here on the earth, his elect, his chosen. And then that takes us into the millennial reign. Now, 28 through 31, he says, when you hear this parable, he says, think about a fig tree. You can look at a fig tree and know it's coming. If I would show you an apple tree, just a a still shot of an apple tree, you'd be able to tell by looking at the apple tree what season it is. If I showed you a bare apple tree with no leaves, you would say, winter. If you see blossoms on it, you would say spring. You see little green apples getting bigger, you would say summer. Always be prepared. If you see nice big red apples on it, you would say fall. You know by looking at it, you can tell what season it is. Jesus is saying in 28 through 31, he says, listen, you guys, I'm paraphrasing here. He goes, you guys have brains. You can see the signs of the times. You know when things are coming. So 29, so you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near at the doors. And if you don't believe me, it's going to happen, 30 and 31. This generation by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Who is that generation? Verse 30, that's a tough one to figure out because that word generation in the Greek means so many different things. It really means a lot of different things. It could mean the generation that saw the signs of the times happening. That means that the generation that sees these end time events starting to come, that that's that generation. It can mean a race. It can mean a nation. Some people believe it means Israel. That this idea that this generation, this nation, this race of the Israelites, the Jews, will not be destroyed. And why would we think they'd be destroyed? Because, guys, they disappeared as a country until 1948. There's a lot of symbolism what that could possibly mean. But he comes back and says in 31, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. And then we covered a lot of 32 through 37 last week. Take heed, watch, pray. Get prepared for this. Understand these type of things that are happening. And now that we have this knowledge of it, what are we going to do? How does this take us deeper in Christ? How does this light a fire under us to go be a light in the witness? How does this prepare us because we know that he's going to return? And what does this do to say, Lord, I want to be ready for you. I want to be ready for you to also go be a light and a witness for you. I like what it says in 1 John 2, 28. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Because why? If we're prepared, we're ready. Because we know, we've taken heed, and we've watched. And we get a chance to see this happening. All right, almost 8 o'clock here. Any quick questions about any of this here? John? Uh, your thoughts on the children being taken at a certain age is more accountability. Mm-hmm. I agree with. Um, and never really thought about it until when you mentioned it again. Children over in other countries, and you say won't really be affected. Right. Those children will disappear. I, I do believe that. Yeah. And will that make them think, hey, uh, something? I hope so. But I'm saying from a. Um, economy, military, political leadership, you know, those people won't. But I understand what you're saying there. Yes, if your child disappears, that would make you think. The, the issue with that is, you hope it drives them to the Lord, I guess. I, I remember watching as a kid, um, and I can't remember now, what they, I think they're called the Thief in the Night movies that were made back in the 70s. 
Yeah, I remember watching those, and I remember them, the religious leaders coming on the TV screen after, after the rapture had happened, and they came on and they said, listen, everybody thinks this is the rapture, but if it was the rapture, we would have went. So since we're still here, obviously it wasn't the rapture. And that's just the sadness, and that's just the blindness that a lot of religions have. I don't know how to explain it away. And that's what's kind of interesting about it. It references this in Thessalonians, that it says the Antichrist will help these people believe the lie. What's the lie? I don't know what that lie is going to be. But how this Antichrist comes into power, he's going to have to be pretty charismatic on what he does to be able to have the world stop, bring peace back together with hopefully billions of people missing, and especially children. There has to be some type of lie that is developed here to be able to say, let's move forward in this. And I have no idea what that lie is going to be, but there is going to be some type of deception that happens there, without a doubt. Anybody else have anything here before I close up? Okay. I think we covered most everything. I know we covered a lot. I want to get the setting up. If you've got more questions, don't be afraid to come up and talk to me afterwards. Um, that'll get us into Mark 14 next week. Mark 14 next week. Hey, would you guys stand and pray with me, please? Lord, I just keep going back to these words. You said, take heed, watch, and pray. Help us not to just go home and say, okay, this was neat. Help us to really grasp this, understand this, apply this, and just to have confidence that you're appearing to know you are returning, Lord. Oh, Lord, light a fire under us just to be passionate about you in all ways and all things. Prepare our hearts for your return in your name. Amen. You guys have a good week and God bless.